Today is May 11th. It is 2016. Our message tonight is called A Biblical View. A Biblical View. Turn with me to Ephesians, the third chapter. I want to read to you a verse from it. When you get to Ephesians 3, say there to let me know you're there. In 25 days in Romania, I preached 75 messages. And they learned to say there when they were there, just like you have, except in Romania it sounds like this. Ocolo. <laughs> Ocolo is Romanian for there. That is the only Romanian word that I know that does not sound like something that we should not say in this country. In the third chapter and the tenth verse, his intent was that now, through the church, somebody say through the church. All right, now look at your neighbor and say, that's me. See, we are the church, not an institution, not brick and mortar. We are the church. Now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has a message that He is displaying to the heavenly powers, and He is doing it through His church. And you are the church. Now raise your hands before the Lord. We're going to say it together. My life speaks a message. My life speaks a message. Church, you are an epistle written by God Himself. You may not feel like your life uh, speaks a message, but it does. You may not have the perspective to understand what message is being spoken, but you will. We're going to begin tonight in the law. We will go from the law to the prophets to the writings right into the New Testament, and I guarantee you will be blessed. Do you want to be blessed? And why are we blessed, church? What do we do with the blessings we receive? So let us go to Genesis 29. And when you get to Genesis 29, say there. I'm going to start with one of the strangest scriptures you could possibly imagine. To get worse than this, you would have to get into Ezekiel somewhere. In Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is, uh, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Everybody has a birth story. And if you're going to be a contestant singing on American Idol or a show like that, the worse your birth story, the more dramatic it should be when the reveal of your voice comes, right? Everybody's got a sad story to tell. Sometimes people sit around and argue about whose birth story was worse. Does anybody hope their story starts with my mother is not loved and she's miserable so I am born? Probably not how you would imagine God's story being written in humanity. Is that fair to say? You know, there would be 12 children born in this family. 
there would be four women to give birth to those 12 sons. The very first one was birthed with the words, the Lord seen my misery. The very last one when born, when Benjamin was born, what did his mother want to name him? Ben-Oni, son of my pain, my sorrow. And the father changed the name to son of my happiness, Ben-Yamin. Does any of that sound good or does it sound like it should be on the Jerry Springer show? What an incredible thing that the family that God picks to show salvation to the entire world's first and last child are in terrible circumstances. Can I tell you, in between the first and the last, it doesn't get a lot better. We have negotiations going on for time with the husband. It's amazing what a mandrake will buy you in the Bible. We have all kinds of struggles happening. There are even two maidservants involved in this process. It is difficult. Now let's talk about the human element in it for just a moment. When you're reading about the story, you know that they produced the Messiah. So on some level you're going, well, you know, but, it, but it's all going to turn out all right. Do you know what they didn't know? That it was all going to turn out all right. Their feelings were really hurt. Their lives were really in jeopardy. Their struggle was real. Hashtag, the struggle is real. I want to show you something about this genealogy in the Bible. So this will be our first slide tonight, Susan. When you look at the left side of your screen, we have defined the names of the children of Israel in their birth order as recorded in Genesis 29 through 30. Reuben, his name means behold a son. Simeon, one who hears. Do you see how I'm doing that? I want to read to you their story. Behold, a son, one who hears, is joining. Praise the Lord. My vindication in the struggle. God's favor, fortune, and troops. Happy is my reward. A precious gift or dwelling place. He adds the son of the right hand. Just defining their names in the order that they're given in the Bible tells a message that is about Jesus the Christ. Can you see that? Am I making it up or can you see it? When you read the definitions of their names in Hebrew, according to the birth order, it tells a story about a Messiah. So let me ask you, what Jewish sage wanted to tell the story after the fact about the Messiah? A Jewish sage who had not received Messiah, would he be motivated to make sure this was encoded into the text in some way? Of course not. Israel would have every reason for this not to be there and not be evident. Think on this for just a moment. To these people that felt like regular life, to these people that felt like struggle, it felt like pain, there were real broken hearts, real tears, and yet, just the day and order of their birth the first day that they are alive tells the story of Messiah when put together. You have no idea what story your life might be telling. They didn't have perspective on it. There's no way in which Benjamin was born and said, Hey, I'm the last chap 
chapter of Messiah's story. He didn't know. You know what he knew? He knew that he had a brother who was no longer with them. Some said he had died. Others wondered whether he was somewhere in Egypt. He knew that he had a a brother named Reuben who had dishonored his father. He knew that Simeon and Levi had killed men in their anger. He knew that Judah was the crown prince, but he didn't know the way in which their story would be told in the centuries to come. The tribes of Israel are listed 24 times in the Bible. Somebody say, that's a lot. The first time they're listed is here. The last time they are listed is in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. And they're in a different order. And not only are they in a different order, but the sons of Israel are something of a baker's dozen. Because Joseph has two half-tribes in it. Sometimes Joseph is inclusive of both tribes. Other times Ephraim and Manasseh are separated. And then sometimes when this, is sto- to- when this story is told, we eliminate a tribe. No one really knows why. But listen to how it changes the story. In Revelation 7, Praise the Lord. Behold, a son. Favor, fortune, and troops. Happy struggle. He has made me forget my sorrows. One who hears has joined the reward, the dwelling place. He has added the son of the right hand is here. What changed in the story? You're forgetting your sorrows in the midst of the trouble. What's changed in the story? The story of their order of birth tells what Christ would do. In Revelation, we see what he has done. There is no no detail of your Bible, not on any level, that does not have significant, profound, eternal meaning. But these were regular people. See, when Gabby got up and went to work this morning, or when Carolyn got the kids dressed this morning, it feels like regular life. But that life was meant to convey a message to the powers in the heavenlies. That life, full of difficulty, full of triumph, full of struggles, it was still meant to tell a story. Go with me to Hebrews 11. Say there when you were there. Their failures, their hardships, their successes, all cumulatively just amounted to plot twist. How many of you like a very predictable story? You hope that on page one, you know exactly what the next 365 pages are going to bring. You wouldn't buy a book like that, but preachers are selling you the story of your life that would look like that. Every day's Friday. Every day's blessed. These soul hustlers have sold you exactly what you would never buy if you had a chance to see the truth. Your life is supposed to be full of struggle. It's supposed to tell a story, one overwhelming, overriding, massive story about God. In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, 
even though he did not know where he was going. Now, would anybody like to point out the obvious problem with that sentence? How did he go if he didn't know where he was going? He had to trust the living God for every step that he took. And much of the time, he probably didn't know if he was going the right direction, but he trusted God to tell him if he wasn't. Do you think that these men were somehow different than us? Do we imagine them so differently after reading the text that we no longer relate to the fact that they fought through their insecurity? They fought through their fear. They fought through their failures. Was Abraham's life one without failures? You remember when she, he said, she's my sister. That's part of the story. How about when Hagar becomes a part of the picture? She's part of the story. Ishmael, still part of the story. In that story, we are trusting a living God to put together in a way that magnifies his name. Obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going, by faith. He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob. Do you mean the patriarchs of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all lived like wandering nomads looking for something that God was revealing to them? They trusted the author of their story, but they had no idea how it would unfold. Is that so very different from you? We trust our king, but none of us knows what is in the next chapter. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same Promise. Dad didn't see the promise. Granddad didn't see the promise. But I'm still going to set out and go after the promise. Church, we, we do not live in a sitcom. The story that was introduced in minute one is not neatly wrapped up in minute 45 so that we can get to a commercial break and pass an offering plot. Our stories are complex. They're often difficult. And that's what makes them beautiful. If you sit here tonight and you're in a chapter you don't like, let's turn the page. Because the King of Kings is going to carry you on to glory. Look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Would somebody in the room say architect? Architect. When you hear the word architect... The beginning of that word, ark, as in another English word, archangel, or any other, ark means high. The last part of it comes from a phrase, tecton, a builder, somebody who constructs things. The architect who is above all others in the construction process. While we were in Romania, we were fortunate. The building next to us had been torn down. And it was a big pile of rubble. Even when they cleared that out and they brought all of the new building materials, it still looked like a massive mess, being somewhat unfamiliar with their building processes. We went out each day and we looked to try to figure out what they were doing. There was a place at which 
They dug into the ground and poured concrete. I was like, oh, okay, I got it. But the slab wasn't flat like our slabs. After that concrete dried, they put more steel and they poured more concrete. It's like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess I get it. And then as time went by, we began to see what looked like walls starting to form. So, well, that's, that's not how I would do it, but it, I'm, I'm getting it. It's kind of rising. I, I start to see it take shape. And as you see it start to take shape, you understand that there's a design there. But in the beginning, it just looked like a pile of rubble and building materials. Do you trust the architect of your life? Do you trust that he has a, a design? Because I got to tell you, on day 25, I could see a design taking shape. But on day 1 and day 5 and day 10, I just had to trust that somebody knew what they were doing. The design did not come into being when I began to understand it. It predated me by a long time. I just began to understand it when we got far enough along in the process to relate to it. If you don't understand what's going on in your life, live a little while. It will become clear. Let's consider the alternative. The devil has come to steal from you, to kill you. And to destroy you. The Bible is full of people that did not understand what their circumstances were achieving for them and for the rest of us. See, when you read about Abraham, that was 2,000 years before Jesus. We are 2,000 years after Jesus. You have 4,000 years of perspective on his life. You know, he didn't have that. He had a promise. And he set out because he believed that the one who gave him the promise was faithful. Hebrews 11 calls him an architect. God had a master design. And although Abraham didn't fully understand it, and Isaac didn't fully understand it, and Jacob didn't fully realize it, they knew that their lives were telling a story. I pray tonight that little bits of the design become clear to you. Because in that concrete, once I saw them pop a few lines, they put a plumb line down, they, they popped some chalk lines on the ground, I started to understand what we were doing. Some of the others, not having built anything, they were still standing there like, why are they drawing on the concrete? But I knew what was beginning to happen because I had been there. Look at your brother and say, you may not have been there. Just be patient with me. See, sometimes we don't see the design in somebody's life because we ain't never been there. So what are you doing wandering out there like that? Well, he's trying to figure out what it is to follow the voice of the Lord. You know, mercy is the currency of the kingdom. It, it, it is everything. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is everything. Because you may just never have been there. Once you've been forgiven... Once you've been encouraged, once you begin to see how the design works, it's funny. You start to look at a pile of building materials and see a house while everybody else just sees trash. Church, I'm not sure what you see when you look in your own mirror. But I know that your life was built according to a design. Have you ever wondered when you see... I'm just going to quote these for you so we don't get too far off. 
There are some very studious folks in this room tonight, and I want to make sure you have a law, prophets, and writings. So the law was Genesis 29. Your prophet is 2 Samuel 16, 11 through 12. There's a, there's a guy named Shimei. And Shimei is calling down... Kurt, let's put it on the screen. 2 Samuel 16, 11 through 12. Shimei is calling down curses. Watch. David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, My son, who is of my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more then... This Benjamite, leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. That's one of the most confusing scriptures you could ever read about King David. David is on his way out of Jerusalem. He's exiled because of a rebellion. He's still king in God's eyes, but the people don't yet see him king because he's leaving his palace. Somebody is spitting on him, cursing at him. Throwing rocks at him. Do you think that David had any idea that he was living out what John 1.11 would say? He came to his own, but his own received him not. Do you think he had any idea that he was living out what Galatians 3.13 would say? He became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse. He probably thought he was just having a crappy day. But that crappy day was still telling a glorious story. It was telling us about how the Messiah would be treated by his own family, about a king who had stepped out of his palace, but would again return for the glory of God. See, you don't know the significance of the day that you're living in. You just know how it feels to you, and your feelings often lie. If we could catch a glimpse of the grand design if we could talk with the architect for just a minute, it might change how you see everything. One of the real problems in this world is pastors are selling visions of success rather than visions of sacrifice. And everybody wants to build according to that plan. And so they construct for themselves theological houses of cards that are waiting to crumble as soon as the first trial or tribulation blows upon it. The gospel actually says it's through many trials, toils, and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. But these clowns are telling us our lives are blessed if we love the Lord for the sake of blessing us. And they build bigger mansions and buy bigger jets and tell you you too can be just like them if you only buy into their plan for success. I'm here to tell you I don't want it. It is a wicked thing to desire the wealth of the wicked. I do not want it. You know what I want? To live within the design God has for me. What I want is to accomplish all that He's laid out for me. I I will never reject His purpose for my life. Even if I don't understand the next step in front of me. How about Psalm 22? Verse 15, Psalm 22 is one of those that just looks like David is having a bad day until you get a thousand years after David and read about the crucifixion. Of course, David didn't live for a thousand years, so he didn't get to read how his story ended. He just knew how the day started for him. In Psalm 22, verse 15, 
My strength is dried up like a pot shard. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, if you were David and you wrote those words, did you wake up that morning and go, Oh, I understand exactly what God's doing with me. Did he have a copy of the latest televangelist book about how blessed he was going to be on that day? Or do you think like every other human being, he struggled through every minute of that, hoping somehow or another that what looked like meaningless suffering somehow told a part of the story. Of course, everything in Psalm 22 happened a thousand years later to Jesus on the cross. And the writers of the New Testament quote it as if it was written about Jesus. But of course, it was actually the man's life, David. Can we just go ahead and say, Nolan doesn't know what eternal significance that flat tire may have had. And the architect is under no obligation to explain it to him. The obligation is that Nolan would trust the living God who has ordered the events of his life. Think of what this allows you to do. I'm staring at these unfamiliar building pieces. I could walk up and go, I don't like this one. Let's get rid of it. Of course, if it's needed on the third floor, we're going to be in trouble. I could walk up and go, I know exactly what to do with this one. I'll make a chair out of it. Of course, if it is the front door... We're going to have a problem. You're going to have to trust that your loving king has brought into your life exactly what you needed to tell the story he intended for you. We have all behind us musical instruments. None of them gets a say in the song that is played on them. None of them gets a chance to argue about the note that is being struck If Matthew wants to tighten a string, do you know what he does? He tightens that string. The string doesn't get a chance to say, why are you doing this to me? It's all part of the song that the master plays through him. Oh, church, if we could just learn to accept the loving sovereignty of our God. If we could trust him and say, if he allowed this into my life, it's because he loves me. That would allow King David to look at Shimei and go, yeah, he's spitting the loogie on me. He just cursed me, my mama, them folks, those folks. But somehow or another, this will be a blessing in the story. And you know what? It was. It actually was a forerunner, a picture of the way Christ would be treated. Everything that happened to David would happen to Jesus. While we're on the subject of genealogies, let me show you another one. Genealogy number two. This comes from Genesis, the fifth chapter. What you see before you are the first ten generations of human beings. Come on, somebody say that's a lot. Ten generations of human beings. Can anybody here name six generations of your family? I mean, 
We're talking about 1,600 years of human history. This goes from somewhere around 4,000 B.C. to 2,400 B.C. 1,600 years to get through 10 generations. All I did was take the Bible dictionaries that are listed at the bottom of the page and define these men's names. The first 10 generations of human history and look what happens. Man appointed or compensated with mortality. The owner, possessor, or purchaser, blessed of, the praised of God, descends, initiating, teaching, dedicating. His death brings or sends a strong, powerful, and vigorous comfort, rest, and peace. That tells the story of Jesus, and it's in the genealogy that you skip when you read Genesis. You mean to tell me that a man might live 954 years just to speak the message? Get it? Hold on. Man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One among many other things that his life spoke. What happens if you remove a couple of those guys? It changes the story. Church, this book is so incredibly beautiful. So incredibly complex. There is an integrated design so that the books interlock with each other. There is a beautiful scarlet cord that weaves from the beginning of the book all the way to the end of it so that we can take a genealogy from Genesis and a genealogy from Revelation and they both speak a beautiful message. Now you could presume tonight that I'm talking to you about cryptoanalysis. You could presume tonight that what we're doing is discovering literary devices within a popular work. But I'm trying to tell you that your life tells a story in ways that you might not yet begin to fathom. You know, the butterfly lands on a tree. It lives seven or eight days. And it thinks it understands the tree that's been there for 200 years. You have no idea how small you are in the grand scheme of things. And yet how important of a part your few days play. You know, my father used to tell me I was just one drunk night. Well, praise God, that one drunk night has turned into 41 years of passionate fire for Jesus the Christ. You have no idea how God can use even a man's sin to bless the world around you. Because this one drunk night is ministered on five continents in over 30 countries. This one drunk night reached as far as the message of the kingdom with you. Look, your life cannot be minimized. It cannot be summarized in a single sentence because your story's not even over yet. If you were in a trial tonight, I hope you find reason to be encouraged. I'd like to tell you that good builders can begin to look at materials and infer design from them. When we built this stage in the church, I was working with some brothers that were framers. And as soon as I brought in the lumber and they saw two by sixes and two by tens and two by twelves and two by fours, they began to lay them out where I had designed them to go without being told. Do you know why? 
Because when they look at a two by six, they know what weight it's supposed to bear. When they look at a two by four, they know how it's traditionally used. When they see a two by twelve, they know among its uses what might be done here. I'd like to look at a few of the things in Israel's design and see what you can infer from it. Would that be all right? Have I bored you tonight? Are you ready to go home? Because a minute ago, my beard got caught on this microphone. And it woke me up. I'm not so much moved with emotion as I am crying because that pulled a giant hair right out of my face while I was preaching. Turn with me to the book of Numbers. When you get to the book of Numbers, find the second chapter. Because I know all of you, when you were looking for deep revelation, the first thing you do is go to the book of Numbers. It's like your fishing hole. It's, uh, this is the lotto ticket you like to buy, right? Book of Numbers. That's, you know, I like the path that is not well trodden. I enjoy the beauty of our king in unusual design. I don't much appreciate people making cookie cutters out of the kingdom. I actually believe there's a place for those of us that do not look like Ken or Barbie in the church world. And for those of us that cannot sing at all. I think that our king's great depth is displayed in the variety of people that call upon him. I think that the ultimate expression of his glory is when every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race is calling upon him with the same love. For that reason, I hope there's never a day that we all wear the same suit. I don't even own one. Where we all carry the same briefcase. We all sit the same way and talk the same way. God made you the way that he wanted you. Sin has tried to taint you. And now the Holy Ghost will refine you and carry you into your purpose if you will just obey. In Numbers 2, looking at the third verse. On the east towards the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon, son of Amenadab. His division numbers, and then we list how many people are in it, 74,600 Meaningless numbers, right? Not really. It's just that when you first hear them, you don't know the design. In the second chapter and 10th verse, we find out who camps on the south. In the second chapter and 18th verse, who camps on the west? In the second chapter and 25th verse, we find out who camps to the north. Let me show you the tribal encampment. Slide number three. When you are looking at Israel... From the air, there is a reference point that they all knew to camp around. This is called the the, uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. And when it set up, the book of Numbers says where everyone else has to set up. This picture has an orientation where the east is, is at the bottom of the screen. Since that's confusing, we'll go to our next slide and show it to you in a slightly different way. Now east is to the right where you would think of it if you're looking at a compass. Judah was to camp here 
Next to him is Issachar. Next to them, Zebulon. To the south, you can see Reuben and Gad and Simeon. To the west, you can see Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. To the north, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. Twelve camps. Twelve tribes in four camps. But in each direction, he picked one tribe. And he said, you will all camp with them. The, the Judites to the east, and then their brothers with them. To the south, Reuben, and then brothers with him. To the west, Ephraim, brothers with him. To the north, Dan, and brothers with him. And who would have ever thought that all of those people camping where God said to camp also speaks a message? Judah means may he be praised. Behold, a son, doubly blessed, he that judges has come. The directions that the people faced under the standards that they were told to be speaks a message about the coming of Christ. But I bet somebody in the 76,400 thought that they were just standing there because it was random. If you had been one of the 76,000 or 74,600, would you go, obviously, we're standing here in 1500 BC, but I can clearly see in the year 33 AD, this will have great significance? See, sometimes your perspective on what you're seeing is everything. For instance, if you were looking at this from the ground level, you know what you'd see? A bunch of people. But looking at it from above, you start to see a design. When you add up those numbers, if they're standing in equal widths, it makes a perfect cross. It's an incredible thing that God himself could do something like this. And if it were me, I would have explained to the people because I would want them to see what a good job I had done. But God's not really all that concerned with what you think of the job he's doing. He wants you to be concerned with what he thinks about the job you're doing. You know, Judah has a tribal standard. That means there's a crest on their flag. Judah's is a lion. Reuben's is the face of a man. Ephraim is an oxen. Dan's is an eagle. We don't have time to go through it tonight. But I would like to tell you that Ezekiel, the first chapter and 10th verse, Ezekiel, the 10th chapter and 14th verse, and Revelation, the 4th chapter and 7th verse, all describe God on a throne with four living creatures under him. And the four living creatures have the face of a lion, the face of a man, the face of an oxen, and the face of an eagle. It's almost as if God is trying to say, I'm enthroned here. But I'm also enthroned upon my people when they're camped where I told them to camp. Are you following me so far? Well, how about this one? Let us look at slide number five and look at the importance of the cherubim. These are those creatures, those living creatures we were talking about. In 1 Samuel 4.4, So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned where? Between the cherubim. In 2 Samuel 6, 2 through 3, he's also enthroned between the cherubim. And so on and so forth with each scripture that is listed on the screen and many more which I didn't list. Your birth, 
your struggle, even the place that you are standing tells a story about God's faithfulness. Don't tell me that you are trapped in a dead-end job. There's no such thing. Don't tell me that you are just wasting a day. There's no such thing. Your life is going to tell some kind of story. It's up to you whether it tells a story of faithfulness or a story of bitterness or a story of faithlessness. God is able to take all things and work them for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Is that true or not? If it is true, then He can take your boss and make him the villain of the story, or He can take your boss and make him the surprise salvation of the story, but it has something to do with how you interact with your boss. What kind of story do you want your life to tell? I, for one, would like my life to tell the story of the same mercy that I have received. I would like my life to tell a story about a passionate collision with the living God that left me forever changed and the people around me in the same condition. I hope the rest of this message wrecks your world. I don't intend to be kind and just pat you on the back and tell you it's your best life now. I hope we leave you in a puddle of tears over God's goodness, His faithfulness. I hope we repent of our faithlessness, but it will have something to do with how you view your story. Are you ready to go to our next passage? Yes. Let's take Hebrews 9. And in our story, a car alarm is going off at this very moment. I was preaching in the building next door some years ago. And the living God blessed me with the opportunity to watch somebody drive my truck out of the parking lot, never to be seen again. Some said it was a devilish attack. In the end, the insurance company paid me more than it was worth, and we used every penny to do missions around the world. So I said, devil, you can attack me like that all day long. Don't throw me in the briar patch. I had a choice in that minute. Do we stop doing what God called us to do because somebody else did something bad? We chose to continue to pray for the people that were at the altar. And on the night my truck was stolen, people got saved. They got filled with the Holy Ghost. And they got prophesied to. See, you can't end my story. I work for an author. And he loves to inspire us to do the things that were prepared in advance for us to do. The only one that can keep you from doing that is you. And it has something to do with the view that you hold. In Hebrews 9, starting in the first verse, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. 
This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, or many translations would say the mercy seat. We cannot discuss these things in detail now. Are you as mad with the writer of Hebrews as I am at this very moment? We can't discuss these things in detail now. You know why? They were familiar with them. This was like describing everyday items to them. But they're not everyday to you and me, are they? I'd like to show you the articles of the tabernacle. When we look at the articles, in the bottom right part of your screen is a bronze altar. You know, when you saw a bronze altar, if this were something that you were used to seeing every day, based on the way that it had been set up in your nation, in your nation's capital, in the very center of your dwelling, so that three times a year you came up and saw it during the days of the temple and during the days of the wilderness wanderings, you saw it every day. When it moved, you moved. This was a symbol of sacrifice. Because when you sinned, This is where an offering had to be made because of your sin. Now, you weren't allowed to actually put the animal on the altar. A Levite had to do that in your place. But you had to provide the animal. And you were there watching because that animal was dying because of your actions. You know, we act like meat comes from the supermarket. We're so insulated from death that it's a difficult thing for us to even think about killing something because of your actions. One year we brought a goat into the church. We named him Bubba. And Bubba was standing there while I was preaching about the Day of Atonement. And in the middle of the message, I pulled out a knife. And make sure she's not here. An old lady goes, ah, scared to death I was going to kill that goat. I handed the knife out and I said, who wants to do it? You know, there was only one who jumped up to do it and that was my son. And that's because we put his crib too close to the wall when he was young. Everybody else was shocked at the thought somebody might kill that goat. Well, it happened every year. It happened every time somebody sinned. So we've made all of this so cheap. Now you send and you say, ah, it's between me and the Lord. You know, don't you even embarrass me by talking to me about it. We say it's between me and the Lord. And what we really mean is, I kind of wished I hadn't done it, but I probably will again. You know, that's usually what Christians mean when they say that. You had to, you had to carry your offering to, to that bronze altar. In front of everybody. Now, if the framers who helped me build this stage could look at a two-by-six and tell me what I'm probably going to do with it, what do you think will happen when we saw you carrying a certain offering to that altar? You think maybe the ladies would be like, we know what Joe was doing. You, you think maybe somebody would be like, <clears throat> I think that's Steve's third goat today. <laughs> You know, this was not exactly a private matter, okay? In fact, when I started looking at the daily requirements for, 
Well, I don't need to tell you what for. I just, I, I don't think I've been in the camp very often, to be honest. This was a daily part of their life. When they saw the copper basin, or the bronze laver, some translations call it, that was where the priest who was covered in the blood of your sacrifice went and washed. Like, amen, at least he's not covered in the blood of my sacrifice anymore. And then you would look and you would see the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the menorah. Those were the things that were in the holy place. You know, it was special. The Ark of the Covenant, you would have heard about it, but you never would have seen it. You couldn't see it because it was behind a curtain. One guy in all of Israel would see it once a year on one day. And they would tie something to his leg in case God struck him dead. Then they could drag him out. These were everyday fixtures in Israel. The most popular by far, obviously, would be the Ark of the Covenant. That's slide number seven. When you look at the Ark of the Covenant, it had these winged creatures on the top of it, kind of like those cherubim we were reading about earlier. And when its description is given in in Exodus, that lid, that atonement cover, is called a mercy seat. It is also called that in Hebrews 9, as in the seat of mercy. This is where blood was poured from a sacrifice once a year to cover people's sin. Let's read Hebrews 9, 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Let me show you an aerial view of this. This will be our next slide. This is the progression from right to left, which is the way that Hebrews read. In fact, if you're looking at a world map, if you're to the west of Jerusalem, typically you write from left to right. If you're to the east of Jerusalem, typically you write from right to left. It's as if all the languages of the world point to one place, the place where God put his throne. So the bronze altar would be the beginning place. What you see to the right, it's, uh, it's hard to make out on this screen, is um, a red gate. This is always facing east. We learn that in Numbers 2. That is the side where the camp of Judah would be. You could not enter into the gate without doing it with praise. That you had to enter through praise to get into the tabernacle. The first place you would come to is a bronze altar for a sacrifice, then a bronze laver, because at the laver, that's where the washing would occur, and then entering into the holy place. Look what two things are opposite of each other. You would have the showbread to the right, you would have the seven-branched menorah to the left. You know, when the nation started, they were covered in blood. The Passover lamb was the covering. And of course, the day after they received the Passover lamb... They got to search their house for unleavened bread. You can read about that in Exodus 13. 
if you had any leaven in your house and you wouldn't get rid of it, then it didn't matter how much blood of the lamb you had received, you're thrown out of Israel. That straightened out a lot of theology today. So what two things are opposite of each other in the Holy of Holies? The seven-branch menorah that represents the Spirit of God would shine the light on the table of showbread, which was God's Word, the only kind of agent of change, yeast, you're allowed to have in your life. Every other you were supposed to throw out. The holy place was that place where you could enter into and you were clean and the Word of God affected you like it should and there were no other contaminants in the Spirit of God showed you the way in which you should go. Having been affected by that, you would come right up to the altar of the incense where you could offer prayer and God would hear you. And then for 1,600 years, you hit a curtain. A curtain that was four to six inches thick At the very least, a curtain that said, this is where your story stops. You can get near God, but not that near. Let's read Mark 15, 38 through 39. Leave the aerial view up there. (laughs) In Mark 15, we have some of the last moments where Jesus is on the cross. In Mark 15, starting in verse 38, 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Something about that curtain tearing, something about making a way into the Holy of Holies for the first time in human history, being able to see what was on the other side of the veil convinced all who were around. This was not an ordinary man. For 1,600 years, people didn't have a view of that place until the year that they did. Which leads me to why we're talking about this tonight. Here recently I was in Romania. And while I was thinking about the struggle of my brothers. And I was watching the daily life. Those who had survived communism under Ceausescu. Those who had never known communism. And listening to the two of them. Because some were born after the event. And listening to their vastly different perspectives on the world. And I was thinking, wow. You know, it really just depends on when you were born in the genealogy as to what your story is as far as you're concerned. I looked up and my friend Raul had on his computer a skyline of a city. And I recognized it immediately. And I said, hey, uh, Raul, what, uh, what's that picture on your computer? He said, ah, it's just pretty. I said, you don't know where it's at? And he goes, well, you know, I, I know I don't said, that's Chicago. And uh, he said, how, how do you know that? I said, because I've been to Chicago. I was in Chicago just before I came here. There's a church in Chicago called the Arising Church. It's, it's a church plant of the one association. It's, we love Chicago. It's the only people in the world who know how to make a hot dog and a pizza. And he goes, well, I just thought it was a pretty picture. It obviously means more to you than it does me. I said, man, you don't have any idea how true 
that is. It turns out that our experiences give us a point of reference. That that point of reference determines how we view things. To him it was a pretty picture. To me it is a town that my friends live in and work in where they're laboring for the gospel. It's a place where I've cried and a place where I've celebrated. To me, Chicago meant something that it didn't mean to him because of my own view of Chicago. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Say there when you are there, and I want to warn you, do not give up on me yet. Romans 12 and verse 1. Now leave our aerial view on the screen. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's almost as if Paul had stood at the right side of the screen and he had looked past the altar that is where sacrifice occurs, past the cleansing, past the holy place, and straight through a torn curtain to see God's throne at the mercy seat. And he said, with that in view... With what the Lord has done for us, going from the sacrifice and ending up in the throne room, with that ever before your view, with that as your frame of reference, then there's a certain way we ought to act. (laughs) Anybody in here cut hair? Two of you? The rest of you are scared to say so. You don't want the church to want free haircuts. So I walk in, I say, hey, Cass, cut my hair short. What is short? Is short Joellen's hair or Curtis' hair? (laughs) What's long? Is long Cassidy's hair or Jennifer's hair? You know, without a frame of reference, sometimes descriptors don't mean anything. That brother's tall, tall like how? Tall like Shaq or tall like Larissa? Honey, in Indonesia, you're tall. (laughs) Paul wanted you to have a frame of reference for what he is telling you. Now let's put it on the screen. The frame of reference for what he is telling you is peering through the eastern gate, looking right past the bronze altar. You can put Romans 12 on the screen. Right past the bronze laver into the Holy of Holies in seeing a torn curtain. By the way, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, not the bottom to the top. It was not the work of a man. It was the work of the man who came from the heavens. He did what you could not do. When your story was over, when you were barred from the presence of God, he tore the barrier. And having torn the barrier, now able to look in and see the throne of God, the very seat of mercy. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What would you not do if you knew on the other side of that action you were standing at the throne of God? See, that's the right way to view obedience to the Lord. It's not, oh, well, you know, I have to be obedient or or, or I'll be punished. 
The right way to view faith-grounded obedience is on the other side of this action. I am meeting with the king. See, if you knew that was the next page of your story, you would not fret with the rest of the page. You wouldn't worry what would be required of you. You would not sit there and renegotiate at the table saying the cost is too high. You wouldn't be distracted with the sin that so easily entangles. If you knew that on the other side of this action is the throne, how would you live? Because Paul has seen something you haven't seen. He has stood there and peered past those items right into the throne of God. And he's saying, no sacrifice is too great if that's where it gets me. Friends, that's a different perspective. 1,600 years is a perspective on Genesis 5. 1,600 years of their lifespan, a perspective they didn't have, but we have it. And it makes a difference for how we view it. From Abraham's day till now, 4,000 years, we can read the genealogy of those boys and we can laugh about the interaction with the women because we have a perspective they don't have. They just had to trust the Lord for every step they took. The fulfillment of the ages has come upon you. You have the pieces of the puzzle being put together before you. You can look at the box and see the finished picture. And now we're trying to put together the pieces. They didn't have any of that. Should more be required of you or less? In view of God's mercy, He let you see into that secret place. He let you see the end result of your life, even if you don't understand how all of the steps get you there. He just required that you trust Him. Amen. You know, speaking of that secret place, let's take an item like the way people handle their finances. If you're a guest in here, I do not want your money. Settle for nothing less than your obedience to the King of Kings. You can't buy me with a check. I'm not impressed by it. I don't want it. I want exactly what it takes to finish my calling and not a penny more. When we look at what the Bible says about finances, let's notice Luke 21, 1 through 2. We can put that on the screen for the folks. As he looked up, Jesus saw... The rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. You know, this is one of those stories that has been preached to death and understood so very little. In view of God's mercy... In view of what acts of obedience do for you. Do we need to count our pennies? Do do we really need to sit down and wonder if we were 
give too much? See, there's a motivator here that you might not know about. Did you remember in Matthew 6, 2, when Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites who sound their trumpets with their giving? By the way, there's no exclusion for uh, somebody who does that and flies in a jet from church to church. There's no exclusion for uh, the guy who has, I tithe on my license plate. There's, there's no exclusion for the guy that lives with gated security to keep you away from him because he's just uh, that holy, right? Shame on you if you put up with these people, by the way. I, I wouldn't so much as speak to them if they were standing here, much less honor them. Jesus is dealing with a heart issue that has to do with how you view his mercy. And in the days of the temple, you can put slide nine on the screen. We didn't have a security system. We had no, uh, a no credit card swipe and a, a PIN number. But by the way, if the mark of the beast ever were a financial thing, and <laughs> let's, not, let's not go there tonight, you can be sure that those churches will have a mark of the beast scanner for your tithe and offering. And they will promise you that if you give them $100, they'll get $700 uh, back to you. They will promise that. That will happen. But in the day when the temple stood, in the court of the, temp- of the woman... So women could come uh, only to this court and no further. The treasury was next to it. And the treasury wall separated uh, the treasury from the court of the women. So what they did is, can you see that there are these kind of funnel things sticking out of the wall? The idea is that you can put a coin in, but you can't stick your hand in there and get a coin out. Follow me? So the Talmud says that there are 13 of these, and the Jews referred to them as trumpets. Alfred Edersheim actually describes, based on his study of the archaeology and the Jewish writings, the sound that it makes when you throw coins in it. So Rich could come up, throw a whole pocket full of coins in there, and rattle around, make a bunch of noise, and then disappear. Look at the great thing that I did with a lot of fanfare. But the woman put all she had in there, and because it was two small coins, it made no noise with anyone except God. See, in Matthew 6, he said, don't do those kind of things for men to see. Instead, do them for your father to see. He let you see into the Holy of Holies, so will you let him see acts of obedience in your life? I'm going to tell you the truth. I do not want your money. I'm not trying to get an offering out of you. I'm trying to tell you that when we say um, you can't serve God and money both, the church has lied to you consistently about it. They've told you that you giving to them is serving God. That is not true. You living in obedient fashion to all that the Word says is you serving God. Money is a small part of it. It's just the biggest obstacle in most Americans' lives. You know, what price is too high in view of God's mercy? How about this one? In Matthew 7, 13, we hear these words. Matthew 7, 13. Amen. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. When you hear a phrase like that, you get it. You can deduce it. Wow, 
We need a highway for those who are going wrong, and we need a service road for those who are going right. Jesus said this on the Mount of Beatitudes. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But in Luke 13, 22, he is approaching Jerusalem. And approaching Jerusalem with something in the backdrop. Could you put that last slide up there? Listen to these words. This would be in the backdrop of what Jesus is saying. And Jesus in Luke 13, 22 says, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort. Somebody say every Every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. When you are looking at the temple, the entrance to the temple is about a third of the size as the exit to the temple. What is the clear implication? You need a whole lot more road space for those walking away from God than those who are running to Him. Church, if you have a proper view of God's mercy, you don't care how narrow that path is. You don't care what it costs you. How much ever you have is all you give. You know, what if the Lord didn't measure what you gave? See, the rich guy gives all of this. He says, look how much I give. What if you were measured by how much you held back? And what if I'm not even talking about money? I'm talking about your obedience, your passion, your life's story. In your life's story, are you the star or is he? How much are you holding back from him? What areas of your life are completely off limit to the author writing the next step? See, in view of his mercy, if you believe that the next page was you stepping into his throne room, every coin you had, every obedient, every, every ounce, every intention of your heart would be whatever it takes to be pleasing to him. So we are to live our lives, as Romans 12 says, as living sacrifices. Listen to verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Once you've seen what Paul has seen, you can no longer live with something else as your reference. This is the only thing that matters. Now, did you erect a veil that Jesus Christ tore down? Did you put between you and him a barrier and a wall of disobedience? Did you say to him, Lord, I'll go this far, but only this far? Because he has full open access made available to you. Can you say the same to him? He has allowed you to go into the Holy of Holies at his very throne. Consider that for a second. What does it mean for a mortal to be at the very throne of God. That's not a small thing. In view of that, you, a regular, 
dust and breath kind of creation at the very throne of God. Ephesians 2 goes so far as to say seated at the right hand of the majesty with the Messiah, seated with Christ at the right hand in the heavenly realms. With that in view, let me ask you, does he have equal access to your life? See, he tore the veil for you. Don't you dare erect a barrier between you and him. Most people are going to talk a good game, but they never will actually make good on it. That's why the exit to the temple is twice as big as the entrance to the temple. But to those who by persistence in doing what is right seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will confer upon you a kingdom. Luke 16, 16 says, From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God has been advancing and the forceful force their way into it. When you get in the throne room, you know the only thing that matters to you? That you're pleasing to Him. That's all you want. And no price is too high. No cost is too high. Could you stand to your feet?